0: Heavenly Father, the things that you have revealed to us in your word are worth understanding. Your word is worth understanding. We pray that you would help us worship you right now, ascribe value and worth to you right now by seeking to understand what you have revealed to us in Revelation chapter 6. Help us to clearly see the last day that you portray in this passage before us this morning. We pray that you would show us that day clearly and that you would help us see it in the same light that the passage intends us to see it. That we would see it as a day that encourages our hearts and satisfies our cries for justice. Father, if we don't see it like that now, I pray that you would make that shift in our minds and in our hearts this morning. I pray that you would cultivate in our hearts a right longing for justice. Please, Father, cause us to see that day, that great day of your wrath, as part of the good ending that you have planned for history. Help us to see it as part of what makes that ending good and to rightly long for it and glorify you in our response to it. Bless us with that clarity this morning. Help me to preach this passage clearly. Help us to listen to it and to understand it. Be glorified in this act of worship. And I pray that you would transform us by it the way that we should be. It's in your name, Jesus, we ask all these things. And it's in you, Holy Spirit, we trust to accomplish it. Amen. All right, you can open up to Revelation chapter 6 if you're not already there. We'll just be preaching verses 12 through 17 today. But there is plenty there for us to preach. Part of what makes for a good ending is the satisfaction of justice. If a story ends with a triumph of evil, we call that a bad ending, right? We walk away unfulfilled. We leave unsatisfied. A good example of this, I think, is uh, in 2018, Marvel released Avengers Infinity War. It became the fifth highest grossing movie of all time. It was the third in the series of Avengers movies where superheroes like Thor and Captain America and Iron Man and the Hulk Band together to fight against the forces of evil. How many of you have seen that movie? Any chance you know what I'm talking about? Okay, maybe not as many as I expected. Or maybe you're just not raising your hands. Don't want to admit that you like watching Avengers movies. That's okay. I get that. Well, unlike in the previous movies, Infinity War didn't end with victory for the good guys. Instead, Thanos, the arch villain of the series, succeeded in his mission to murder half the universe. By gaining control of the powerful infinity stones, Thanos was able to snap his fingers and turn half of the universe to ash, half of all living creatures to ash. The ending is shocking the first time you see it. Thanos gets away with mass murder and we see him afterwards depicted on an idyllic planet, satisfied in his wicked accomplishment. How did you feel the first time you watched that ending? Did you leave satisfied? Or were you dying for there to be a sequel for the next movie to come out soon? It can't end this way, right? Evil can't prevail. Well, in 2019, Marvel released the final film in the series, Avengers Endgame, and it became the second highest grossing movie of all time. Perhaps that says something about our desire for a good ending. Audiences certainly got one, the heroic Avengers gained control of the Infinity Stones themselves and undid all the effects of Thanos' evil. They brought back everyone he killed. And not only that, but fitting justice was brought to the wicked villain and his armies. With the snap of a finger, uh, with the snap of a finger Iron Man turned Thanos and all of his forces of evil to ash, just like Thanos had done to others. Justice was satisfied. That's a good ending. That's a good ending. Now in the book of Revelation, God reveals the ending of his story, which is the story of history. And it's an ending that weaves together those same two threads I just mentioned in an even more magnificent way. The effects of evil are undone and justice is satisfied. The effects of evil are undone and justice is satisfied. Our passage today draws attention to that last thread the satisfaction of justice. You'll recall how the Apostle John was taken up to the throne room of God in his vision. In Revelation 4, he saw the holy, holy, holy God seated on his throne. And in Revelation 5, he saw the scroll of destiny. Which describes the last days, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. And that scroll it was sealed with seven, it was sealed with seven seals, and only the God man, only Jesus, who John sees standing as a lamb that had been slain. only he was able to open the scroll, because only he could fulfill the contents of it, the breaking of each seal describes a piece of the history between Jesus' comings, which of course includes the time that we're living in today. And there are seven seals. The number seven may signify the completeness or fullness of the vindication of God's righteousness. We saw last week in the first four seals that God's temporal judgments on evil were depicted with vivid apocalyptic symbolism. The first four seals revealed that before the final judgment, God is exercising his judgment on sin in space and time in the course of history through things like war and famine and plague and death. Temporal judgments, which also function as a precursor to the final judgment. The breaking of the fifth seal directs us to an altar. But instead of seeing slain animals on the altar, John sees what? He sees the souls of Christians. Christians who had given their lives for the faith. Look at verse 9 in Revelation 6. When Jesus opened the fifth seal, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who are to be killed as they themselves had been. So sorry, he doesn't see them. He doesn't see the slain Christians on the altar. It's under the altar, but he he hears them crying out for justice. And God tells them to rest. He tells them to rest because there were still more saints who would offer their lives in accordance with God's plan and for his glory. But until then, the evil world would not receive what it deserves. Justice will not be satisfied. And if justice is not satisfied, those who long for justice will not be satisfied. They will cry out with the martyrs in verse 10 How long before you will judge, O Lord? We should not be satisfied when the world appears to get away with the murder of God's people. We should not be satisfied with Avengers Infinity War, with Thanos appearing to get away with mass murder. We should long for justice. We should ache for the ending that's anticipated in the fifth seal, when the number of martyrs is complete. That ending finally comes with seal number six. And like Avengers Endgame, this is the ending that we've been waiting for. When it comes, it should be glorious Satisfying to our souls. I hope we can see these verses in that light today. It may be a different light than you're used to seeing that final day, but I think it's the light that the passage is intended to be seen in. The sixth seal is the day of the Lord, it is the great day of God's wrath, the day of judgment. And while we might not see it as such, that day is the answer. To the cry of the fifth seal. It fulfills the deep longing of our hearts for justice. It is the ending that brings encouragement and satisfaction to God's people. So, two questions for you. What is that day and what impact should it have on us? We'll see a couple of things about that day from the passage this morning. First, that day is the end of the world. And second, that day is the day of judgment. Thirdly, we'll look this morning at one way that day should impact you. It should bring satisfaction. Yes, it should, it should bring satisfaction to you. It's an answered cry. What do we mean by that? We'll see in a little bit. So first, the end of the world. Second, the judgment of the world. And third, an answered cry. Here's the main point that I want to draw out of the sixth seal this morning. Are you ready? Justice will be satisfied, so the just will be satisfied. Justice will be satisfied, so the just will be satisfied. Let's take a look first at what John reveals to us about that day. Point number one the end of the world. As Jesus breaks the sixth seal, We get a new revelation about the last days. But this revelation is different from the others because this seal reveals to us the beginning of the end. Let's read together verse 12. John says, When Jesus opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. What a mind-blowing sight. In his vision, John sees the universe falling apart. The very fabric of nature itself is unraveling. All the regularity and the order of the cosmos is collapsing, it's breaking down. I want you to try to see for a second what John was seeing. Just imagine it in your mind with me. You can close your eyes if it helps. Creation is dissolving. Look at the earth, picture the earth. There it is, shaking. But it's not just an ordinary earthquake like some in John's audience may have had personal experience with. This is, John says, a great shaking of the earth. A shaking that might hearken us back to the descending of God on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. Perhaps we're to infer here that God himself is coming onto the scene. But now look at the sky. What happened to the sun? It's black, right? That's not its normal color. Instead of shining and illuminating the world with its light, the sun itself is dark. The sun is dark. And it's not just dark. John says it's black as sackcloth. Sackcloth, as you probably know, is a garment of mourning. And look at the moon, John says. It's it's darkened too. The moon has become like blood. I want you to put a pause on that picture. And try to imagine a fruit tree, if you will. And imagine that tree being shaken by the wind. See the wind blowing and shaking the fruit off the tree so that its fruit falls to the ground. You hear the leaves bustling in the wind. You hear the thud of the fruit as it hits the ground. I want you to come back to John's vision now and realize that he sees the stars of the sky falling To the earth, falling like what? Like fruit falling from a tree being shaken by the wind. The stars falling from the sky like fruit falling from the tree. Maybe it's like the whole sky is being shaken, and the stars hanging up there, connected to the sky like fruit connected to a tree, are just snapped out of place and they plummet to the earth. But then the sky itself is rolled up, John says. Picture the sky spread out like a big scroll above us. A scroll that's split in the middle with the parchment going out in both directions, half to the left, half to the right. And then imagine that scroll, that giant scroll, being rolled up to the middle. That's the sky. The sky is being rolled up. Or perhaps instead we're supposed to imagine that the sky is vanishing like the way the writing on a scroll disappears when it's rolled up. The sky is gone. The sky's been rolled up like a scroll. And the last but not least, John, he sees the islands in the mountains. Picture them in your mind with me. The mountains and islands, which, like one scholar suggested, may be among the most stable features of the world. They're what? They're destabilized or rather as John says there removed from their place what an overwhelming sight what a breathtaking sight what's happening here what's happening is creation is coming undone the cosmos is being violently and cataclysmically dissolved what's being pictured here for us is the end It's the end. No more more light from the sun. No more stars in the sky. No more sky. The stable, stable, mountains and islands are removed from their places. This is game over, right? Now we've been in Revelation long enough to know that as a work of apocalyptic literature, just like other writings in that genre, Revelation employs vivid imagery and symbolism to communicate its message. So we must not take these images literally. And by that I mean the sun will not necessarily turn black, nor the stars actually fall from the sky. I mean, you can imagine if even one of them fell from the sky, that would be the end of the entire earth, right? In fact, if we were to interpret this passage literally, it would be inconsistent with itself. Because if the mountains are removed from their places, how will the wicked flee to the mountains? Clearly, these images are not intended to have a one-to-one correspondence with the realities that they represent. But that said, I don't think these images are merely poetic for massive social or political upheaval or something like that. I also think that they're more than metaphors for judgment. Some might try to limit it just to that, particularly in light of the Old Testament imagery that's being drawn upon here, as we'll see in a second, and in light of things like how, as one scholar proposed, for example, the stars could have been understood as heavenly powers or the mountains could have been viewed as forces of evil. It's possible. I do think we're intended to think of judgment here. We'll look at that again momentarily. But I also think that the imagery in the sixth seal While it shouldn't be taken literally, does point to a real physical phenomena of some kind. What that will look like exactly, I don't know. The apostle Peter, in one of his letters, he seems to speak of something similar when he says in Second Peter three ten, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This seems to be referring to a physical reality. An actual disruption of the created order that occurs on that great day when God comes again. Just let that hit, 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 uh, sorry, just let that hit you for a second. Just let that sink in. That the, the regular functioning of the natural world, all of the stability, the order of things that we're so accustomed to, that will not continue forever. There will be a time, a real time in the future, an exact number of hours and minutes from now when the creator himself will dramatically intervene in creation and the physical world as we know it will be disrupted. That will actually happen on that day. I think that the imagery of cosmic disillusion here also reveals the finality of that day that that day is the last day it's the last day this is the end of the world at least as far as we know it in the book of revelation this is the first time we come to the end as we continue on the book we'll arrive at that last day a few more times and we'll have a chance to consider it further But in our first encounter with that day, what we see are cataclysmic images of cosmic catastrophe. Images that tell us this is the end. This is the end. The imagery here, though, I think, reveals something else too. Something that may not be as apparent to us if we're not well versed in the Old Testament. The imagery reveals that this final day will be a day of wrath. What is that day? It is the end of the world and it is the judgment of the world. Point number two, the judgment of the world. Let's go ahead and journey back to the Old Testament together. I want you to listen to the words of Isaiah's prophecy of judgment against the nations or perhaps particularly against the nation of Edom in Isaiah chapter 34. He said, starting in verse 2, the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, he has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Sound familiar? The imagery is similar. The sky rolling up like a scroll, the hosts of heaven falling like things fall from a tree. What are these images associated with? Judgment. Judgment. Isaiah also prophesied about the fall of the nation of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13. He said, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Sound familiar? Isaiah continues, He's speak, this is God speaking now. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. What is Isaiah addressing? Well, he may be addressing the future judgment of the world and or how God in his sovereignty will judge the actual nation of Babylon in history, by conquering them with the Persians. Either way, we find imagery of cosmic disruption. The sun, the moon, the stars failing to give their light. The earth is shaken out of its place. We find this imagery associated with judgment. In fact, it may even be metaphorical for God's judgment against his enemies. We we have a very similar case in Ezekiel 32 where imagery about the darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars is used in the context of God's judgment against Pharaoh or Egypt. So what does it mean that we find this imagery in John's vision of the sixth seal? Well, one thing it means is that we're to understand that day as a day of judgment. It's a day of judgment. And perhaps as New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner said, quote, images used of God's judgment in history are now applied to the final judgment so that the judgments in history function as a precursor to God's final judgment of the wicked. Either way, I think we can say that the imagery of the sixth seal reveals that day is the final day and that day is a day of judgment. Who is it today of judgment for? Look at verse 15 with me of Revelation 6, verse 15. John's continuing on in his vision, and he says that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is a day of judgment, John says, for the whole world. The whole world. The last category of people mentioned there in verse 15 encompasses all people, regardless of social class. It says, everyone, slave and free. All the enemies of God will be judged. From the greatest in society, all the way down to the least. That means nobody, nobody will escape his judgment. But did you notice something interesting about the categories that John lists there? Aside from the last grouping, slave and free, which loops in the entire world right the other five categories are all people of high social standing why is that scholar leon morris suggests quote the emphasis is on the fact that no matter how we understand greatness even the greatest will not be immune the normally secure will be without resource the secure in this life we will have no security then. Are you the highest political authority in our land? Your greatness will not spare you from that day. Joe Biden and Gavin Newsom will be judged on that day along with everyone else. Are you a celebrity or a cultural influencer? Your, influencer means, your influence means nothing on that day. You too will be judged along with everyone else in the world. Are you rich? Your wealth will not be able to buy you out of that one. Are you important? It doesn't matter. Anything, anything you find security in here will be unable to exempt you from the justice of God. As Moore said, the greatest among us will not be immune. There are no exceptions. This is a day of judgment. For the world. And everyone alike, John says, will flee in terror before the sovereign king when he breaks onto the world stage in flaming fire. The people fleeing to caves is probably an allusion to Isaiah chapter 2, where Isaiah also prophesies about the day of the Lord, saying, The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. They will try to hide, but we know that their effort is in vain. You can run, but you can't hide from God. They cry out to the mountains and rocks. Look at verse 16. They cry out saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's probably an allusion too to Hosea 10.8. But there is no hiding from the face of the one who is seated on the throne, nor is there hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. We can't hide, but that certainly hasn't stopped us from trying. In fact, from the very beginning, man has been trying to hide from God. In the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do when they heard God in the garden? Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They tried to hide from his presence. And here, at the very end of the story of history, at the last day, we find sinful man doing the exact same thing, trying to hide from God's presence. Why did they hide on that day? They tell us themselves in verse 17, they're crying out, Hide us, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? They're terrified of facing God's wrath. Terrified. Who can stand, they say? What's the answer? No one. No one can withstand the wrath of God. The word here, to stand, may convey, as one dictionary put it, something like, quote, standing firm so as to hold one's ground in battle. Nobody can hold their ground against God's fiery wrath. No one can hold their ground when God comes against them. Hear the words of the prophet Nahum. He says, Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Nahum says that his people will be saved from his wrath and we'll actually see the blessed condition of his people in the next chapter in Revelation 7, which may be intentionally contrasted with the fate of the wicked here in Revelation 6. But God's word makes clear, as for his enemies, as for his enemies, they will face certain doom. His enemies call that day the day of their wrath. Verse 17 says, the great day of their wrath has come. Whose wrath is it? Verse 16, it's the wrath of him who is seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Is Jesus. This is the day of their wrath. Their wrath. What is wrath? Not a word that we use too often outside of theological context. In our passage today, wrath might mean the just punishment that's issued forth from God's anger against evil. The just punishment that's issued forth from God's anger against evil. And yes, God is angry. The king of the universe is angry. He has a deep, burning anger against evil. Maybe you say, that's strange. I thought God was a loving God. He is. And that's precisely why he is wrathful. One scholar said that Jesus' wrath is, quote, the consuming passion of his holy love that wills to destroy all that is unloving and untrue. Let me read that again. His wrath is the consuming passion of his holy love that wills to destroy all that is unloving and untrue. Because God loves, he hates. Here's an illustration for you. Do you love your friends? Do you love your children? Think of a time, an actual time in your life, when they were mistreated somehow. Remember it in your mind and ask yourself, how did you feel when that happened? When the one that you loved was mistreated? Were you okay with it? Or did it anger you at all? I hope it made you angry. God's love makes him angry. He loves all that is good, all that is true, all that is beautiful. And so he hates all that is evil and all that is false. It is because God loves his creation and it's because of God's love for himself, the love within the persons of the Trinity itself that God hates all sin. His anger is pure, it is righteous, it is just and in his anger he will execute justice. That day will be a day of wrath. This is the day that the Bible calls the day of the Lord. In fact, the image of the moon turning to blood is also found in Joel uh, chapter 2, which is a prophecy about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day the Lord intervenes. It is the day he intervenes to judge or to save. Whether it's a 24-hour day or not, it doesn't matter. That day is the time of God's intervention. The emphasis in the Old Testament, as in our passage today, is on his intervention to judge. In fact, the Bible uses that phrase of other days in history. It says there have been other days of the Lord in history. Other days that God has, in his sovereignty, acted to judge evil. We read from Isaiah 13 earlier where Isaiah was prophesying about the fall of Babylon. And he refers to that event as the day of the Lord. This prophecy was fulfilled in 539 B.C. And yet, at the same time, in light of the rest of Scripture, we know that those days in the past, those days of the Lord in the past, point us to that day in the future. That day where God will intervene finally and decisively to judge all evil. One scholar put it well. He said, quote, this prophetic expectation of a final climactic event which is cosmic in scope is not inconsistent with the fact that the biblical writers sometimes applied day of the Lord to past events, such as the destruction of Jerusalem in Lamentations 2.22 and the defeat of Egypt in Jeremiah 46.10. He says in biblical thought, these past events represent the future and tend to merge into it. Foreshadowing the time when all human wickedness will be judged, human pride and arrogance will be exposed, and any power opposed to God will be deposed. As verse 17 says, the sixth seal reveals the great day of their wrath. This is the day of the Lord, the ultimate intervention of God judge this is the grand finale the final or the inauguration of the final judgment there will be no more temporal judgments in history like we saw with the first four seals this time all the wicked will be judged from the greatest in society to the least and each will fully receive the wrath that they deserve what does this mean well one thing it means is that justice will be satisfied on that day. Justice will be satisfied. On that day God will satisfy justice perfectly. And so when we take a step back, we see first point number 1 that that day is the end of the world. And secondly, we see point number 2 that that day means the judgment of the world. The world will be judged on that day. Let me ask you, is that day part of the good ending that you long for? Is it? My suggestion to you is that it should be. We'll take a look at that together at point number three. Point number three, an answered cry. You can go ahead and look at the passage again with me. One important thing to notice about the sixth seal is that it's the sixth seal. And by that, I mean it follows the fifth. What did we see in the fifth seal? We saw the souls of slain Christians loudly crying out to God in verse 10. Look at verse 10. O sovereign Lord, how holy and true! How long before you will judge and avenge our blood, On those who dwell on the earth. The sixth seal is the answer to their cry. It is when the one on the throne and the Lamb, who is Jesus, judges the world and avenges the blood of his people. They are avengers from heaven, the true heroes, not fictional superheroes, but the mighty agents of light, dramatically intervening in the world of darkness to bring all evildoers without exception to fitting justice. This was the ending longed for by the martyred saints. And I would add by all who truly long for justice. That day, that day of wrath, is an answered cry. So what impact should they have on you? Well, there are many, I think. But in light of the context, I'd say that day should bring you satisfaction. It should satisfy you. Does it? When you read that passage, is that the impact it has on you? Does that day answer the cry of your own heart? Is that part of the ending that you long for? Maybe you say, It's hard for me to rejoice in the day of God's wrath. I don't want anyone to experience the wrath of God. And on top of that, I know how sinful I am. I know that I was an evildoer, just like everyone else, and that I deserved his wrath. If God had given me justice, it would mean an eternity of conscious torment in hell for me. You'd be right in saying all of that. In fact, the only reason that you wouldn't be among those who hide themselves in the caves and call out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb is because of the Lamb himself, Jesus. He is the only reason that wrathful Lamb from heaven who will bring justice to the wicked world is the one who first came to be slain as a sacrificial lamb for the wicked world, Jesus came to save you from God's wrath. He took God's awful wrath in your place on the cross. All those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus to save them, He makes righteous. So that what? Instead of hiding from the presence of God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And like all who remain in their sin will do on that last day, instead of hiding from God, you can enter God's presence and enjoy Him and know Him forever. So it is right for you to desire for all to be saved. That is the desire of God Himself. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9 that God, quote, is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We should always pray for God's mercy over his justice. It's right for us to want salvation instead of judgment. So what then? Was it wrong for the martyred saints in Revelation 6 to cry out for justice? Of course not. If God will not save, then our desire should be justice. The alternative is for evil to go unpunished. Right? That's the alternative. Why is it so hard for us still? Why is it hard to desire God's wrath on the wicked? Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that we're not as moved by evil as we should be. I don't think we feel the magnitude of the gravity of sin enough. Why is that? Again, there's probably probably multiple reasons, but I think it's ultimately a problem of love for us. Our love for God and our love for others is so small that it doesn't bother us when God and others are egregiously violated. That certainly applies to our lack of contempt for the greatest evils in history, but it also applies to our lack of contempt for every single sin committed. Every sin is an offense against God. Every sin is an offense of infinite magnitude. And every sin should be hated by us if we love our precious God whom all sin is against. If we lack love, of course, then we'll lack a desire for the wronged to receive the justice that they should. The martyrs in the fifth seal, they didn't have that struggle. They cried out for the justice of God. They had personally experienced the grave injustice of this world through the murder of their own lives. This was personal experience for them. And even though we may never have experiences of injustice like that, I think if we cared more about God and I think if we cared more about others, we too would cry out for justice with them. If we saw every sin as utterly sinful, that great day of wrath would be an answer to our own cries and it would satisfy our own souls. I think in order for us to be impacted by the day of judgment, like this passage would have us be, 6th seal in the context of Revelation 6, in order for us to be impacted by it the way that we should, I think our longing for justice needs to be stirred up. I think we need to long for justice more, and only then will it bring us the satisfaction and encouragement that it should. I want to read to you part of an account of a Christian martyr from the third century. I'm not sure how confident we are in the accuracy of this history. This comes from Christianity Today. In fact, I think it may have originally came from a book called 131 Christians Everyone Should Know. I want you to consider your response to this story. As you listen to it, be thinking about how you're responding to it personally. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman who at the turn of the 3rd century lived with her husband, her son, and her slave, Felicitas, in Carthage, in modern Tunis. According to a different source, she was around 22 years old and was the mother to a nursing child. At this time, North Africa was the center of a vibrant Christian community. It is no surprise then that uh, when Emperor Septimius Severus determined to cripple Christianity, He believed it undermined Roman patriotism. He focused his attention on North Africa. Among the first to be arrested were five new Christians taking classes to prepare for baptism, one of whom was Perpetua. Her father immediately came to her in prison. He was a pagan, and he saw an easy way for Perpetua to save herself. He entreated her simply to deny she was a Christian. Father, do you see this vase here? She replied. Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. Perpetua, her friends, and her slave, Felicitas, who had subsequently been arrested, and who, according to another source, by the way, had also been pregnant and actually gone into labor in prison, they were dressed in belted tunics. When they entered the stadium, Wild beasts and gladiators roamed the arena floor. And in the stands, crowds roared to see blood. They didn't have to wait long. Immediately, a wild heifer charged the group. Perpetua was tossed into the air and onto her back. She sat up, adjusted her ripped tunic, and walked over to help her slave. Then a leopard was let loose. And it wasn't long before the tunics of the Christians were stained with blood. This was too deliberate for the impatient crowd, which began calling for death for the Christians. So Perpetua, Felicitas, and friends were lined up and one by one were slain by the sword. Two women, two young women, horrifically slaughtered for their faith like animals and their children now motherless. What evil, right? What unspeakable injustice and like we talked about last week can you imagine that happening to one of the women in our own church to one of our wives maybe would we not cry out with the martyrs in revelation 6 for justice would we not long for the blood of our wives or our sisters in christ to be avenged would that great day of the lord not bring satisfaction to our broken hearts When God finally intervenes to bring justice to the ones who sentenced our sisters to death and presented their precious bodies to wild beasts and who slay them with the sword and to the ones who were feasting on their torture and death as some kind of entertaining spectacle. Yet Perpetua and Felicitas are our sisters in Christ. We're separated by them with nothing but space and time. And our hearts should yearn for justice for them as they should for all of our slain brothers and sisters in Christ. Why do we not cry out? Why do we feel so little of the magnitude of evil? Is it because we love them and because we love their heavenly father so little that these grave offenses mean almost nothing to us? What comfort the revelation at the sixth seal should have brought to Christians facing persecution in John's day. It should bring comfort to us too if we love our persecuted brothers and sisters. But I don't think it will ever impact us like that if we're not disturbed by evil in the first place. Consider even the great evil in our own land. Does the staggering injustice here overwhelm your soul? and make you cry out for the day of God's wrath. In our own country, did you know that since Roe v. Wade in 1973, we have murdered over 63 million babies? 63 million people. That should take your breath away. Around 1 million people live in San Jose. Imagine the entire population Of our city slaughtered everyone killed their life unjustly taken from them and yet in the United States alone in just our own country we have murdered a population of over 60 San Jose's and not just people but babies babies precious little baby boys and girls innocent that we slaughter in the womb We kill them with pills. We kill them with lethal injections. We kill them by tearing them apart limb by limb when they're too big to kill the other ways. And we pay others to do this for us. And then sometimes they even fix price tags to their body parts the body parts of our precious children when we had them murder. And then they sell those body parts for profit. How dare they? How dare they do that to the precious little image bearers of God? How could they do that to God? How can you hear of unspeakable evil like this and not cry out to the Lord for his wrath? To not cry out for them to get what they deserve? What is wrong with us? Are we so unfeeling? Do we love God and these children so little that justice for them is of no importance to us? How can we not weep over the bloodshed in our own neighborhoods and long for God to bring fitting justice. If he will not save, then we should cry out for his justice. It's obvious, I think, that this should be our response to the greatest of sins, but this should also be our response to all sin when we see sin as utterly sinful as it is, when we see it as the egregious offense that it is to our most holy and good and precious God whom we love more than anything else. The great day of God's wrath was an answered cry for the martyrs. It is an answered cry for you. Is it an answered cry for you? If not, it should be. If you find yourself unmoved by the magnitude of evil in this world, then go before God in prayer. And seek forgiveness for your lack of love for him and for others. Your lack of love for all those who are so egregiously wronged by the wickedness of this world. And pray that he would cultivate in your heart a right longing for justice. By inflaming your love. Your love for him and your love for others. Ask him to give you the same love that he has. If your heart does cry out for justice, then let that day Be the answer to your cries. Let that day satisfy your longing, as it will for the martyrs in the fifth seal. Justice will be satisfied, so the just will be satisfied. Justice will be satisfied, so all the just will be satisfied. We've seen that the sixth seal reveals the final day, the end of the world. We've also seen that the final day is the day of wrath for the world. The seal reveals the arrival of the final judgment. And in the context of Revelation 6, that day of wrath is an answered cry. It is the answer to cries for justice and should be a source of encouragement to all those who are grieved by the evil of this world. The ending of God's story is not an ending that leaves evil unpunished and the righteous longing for more. It is a good ending. It's an Avengers Endgame-like ending. It's an ending that brings justice to the wicked. May we rightly long for justice ourselves and see that day as the answer to our own cries. And may the coming satisfaction of justice truly satisfy our hearts of love like it should. Let me pray that God would do that right now for us. Father, we know that you are full of wrath, that you are a God that has indignation against sin every day. We know, Father, that you hate because you love. We know, Father, that you are grieved by the wickedness of this world. And we know, Father, that we should be too. We ask that you would forgive us for our lack of love and our lack of desire for justice. Justice for you who is wronged most of all and justice for all those who are wronged in this world. We pray, Father, that you would increase our love by your Spirit and in so doing, increase our longing for justice. Let us rightly long for justice and let us see that day revealed to us in the sixth seal as the answer to our cries. Let it bring us the satisfaction that it should, for your glory. We pray this also out of your love for us. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.